0: Well, friends, I have turned with my conscience alarmed and tears in my eyes many times to Psalm 32. And even again this morning, um, my wife and I driving in from a house sitting a little ways out of town and uh, just uh, weepy again this morning thinking about these truths of forgiveness for, for the sinner, for me. It's good for us to meditate long and slow on the realities of forgiveness in Christ. The rest that we have in Christ. And that though our God is holy, he's one who blesses his people who are sinners. One who forgives. These are the meditations, aren't they, of Psalm 32. The title of this message is The Blessed Forgiven Life. And this is a Psalm of David whose sin splashes across the Old Testament, really from the heights of exemplary character into unforgettable compromise. And so this is a sin, uh, this is a psalm that follows his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, the murdering cover-up that followed David hitting rock bottom, as it were. But I want to remind us repeatedly this morning that David's compromise was not Merely sexual sin. It was the mask wearing and the hypocrisy and the deceit and the evasion and the gamesmanship with his God that followed. And I believe that Psalm 32 is a fulfillment of a promise that David made in his most raw emotions of repentance in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 verse 13 says, as he is pouring out his heart in repentance, it says... I, this is David speaking, I will instruct, I will teach transgressors in the way and sinners will be converted to you. And beloved, that's my shameless desire this morning As if there is someone in this room who has not known the sweetness of forgiveness in Christ. That sinners would be converted by the storytelling of one who knows the depths of agony and hypocrisy And the sweetness of being restored to his God. This is what happens in Psalm 32. It is after Psalm 51 was written, looking back at the whole saga when David received increased clarity and conviction and closeness with his God when he was restored. After uh, being estranged in that season of not just sin but hypocrisy. And it is then a maskeel, a teaching psalm. That's the meaning there a contemplative poem, if you will, where David, he makes good on his promise to showcase his sin before all of Israel and say, remember this, Israel. Think on these things. So that they would sing and they would know and they would talk of Yahweh as the God who forgives. In fact, those, uh, that little pause, selah, is what, uh, what it means, uh, pause there. Verse 5, verse 7. This is an invitation, this psalm, for us to slow down and think meditatively about the realities of confession, of forgiveness, of God's kindness to sinners. So six lessons. If you're taking notes or following an an outline, we'll, we'll consider six lessons on forgiveness from one who knows. One who knows both the strain of a faked relationship with God and the joy of that relationship being restored. These are lessons looking back again, not just at the fact of sin, but the fact of sin followed up by the compromise and the fake spirituality and the hypocrisy that really dominated David's life for the next uh, nine months to a year. And so let's look at these lessons together. The first, in verse 1 and 2, is that blessedness is promised to the cleansed life. Blessedness is promised to the cleansed. Life. Look at how this psalm opens. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. You can see that key word. Really, this psalm opens with a shout for joy. It's an exclamation point, a conclusion that comes at the beginning. A kind of freedom and spiritual joy that come from a cleansed conscience, And friends, again, the clarity and the power that flowed into David's life was that following uh, the honesty and the confession of his walk with God. This is speaking of a blessing that David didn't always have, but he looked back at God's faithfulness in his life through the forgiveness of sins. And he celebrates it in these opening verses. 1 John uh, is a favorite book of mine, and it speaks with a similar kind of flavor in the opening words where he says, I write these things to you, beloved, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, there is an advocate with the Father. There is, in 1 John chapter 1, joy and fellowship and walking in the light. This word blessed, it means happy, contented, satisfied, restored. And what God wants us to know this morning, what he wants you to know, is that the blessed life is not in the good life of sort of, security or material provision, the blessed life is the life of the one who loves God and fears God. Now there are three words for sin in verse 1 and 2. Do you see them? He opens with the word transgression. Transgression is uh, the word f- really for rebellion. You, you think about crossing the line. It's, it's where I know the Bible says this, but, or you, you see the line and you say, I'm going to cross that. It's a heart of rebellion, transgression. We know chapter and verse, but we cross a line, kind of defying it with authority. We've had the benefit over these last weeks of studying the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, and so you're familiar, in those works of the flesh there's lots of different kinds of sin. There's relational sins, there were sexual sins, there was anger-related sins, there was religious sins, and there can be a, a line crossing that our Bible describes as Transgression. I'd ask you this morning, what are those areas maybe in your life where there's stubbornness, there's willful ignorance, transgression? The second word, sin, means missing the mark. You're maybe familiar with that idea, missing the mark, falling short. Uh, sometimes we know what's right, but we just we fail to live up to God's standard, don't we? We see that in our lives. That third word, look at verse 2 again, is the word iniquity. Iniquity, and that means Twisted. It's a a powerful picture there. That which is perverted, which is twisted, which is bent. Sin takes often what is good and it bends it in on on self, doesn't it? But look at the emphasis, beloved, in these opening verses. This is not just talking about transgression, but transgression forgiven. Sin covered. Iniquity not counted. Not imputed. That's the blessing. God carries, he covers, he cancels our sin. It's a gift that you can't give yourself. A cleansed, forgiven inner life. In fact, that word forgiven, verse uh, verse one there, forgiven, it, it means that the burden of guilt is lifted. Guilt can be so burdensome, can't it? Sin forgiven means that the burden of guilt is lifted, that God does that in our lives. Covered is a word for atonement. Removed. Uh, Removed as far as the east is from the west is our sin removed from us. Psalm 103 verse 12. Not imputed is a sort of a bookkeeping kind of a record-keeping imagery. It's not counted, but rather canceled. And so think about it. You think of David's own journey. He committed adultery He covered his tracks, he tried to manage his sin, he ended up killing, he he broke tons of commandments, he defiled his inner life, he pretended for month after month. He chose a path of immorality and murder and scheming, and there were ongoing consequences from that sin. And yet David was a man who knew what it was to be blessed, to have his sins forgiven, covered Not counted against him. Isn't it amazing this morning? I was just thinking about this. We need this as believers to recognize God doesn't count our sins against us. He wipes them away. He doesn't deal with you, friend, according to your envy or lust or anger or idolatry. Those things that you would otherwise be embarrassed by. If you brought them into the light before the Lord, he has thrown them into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We sing that. But why? Verse 2 begins to get at the heart of this. Look at verse 2, where it's not just words for sin and forgiveness, but he gets at the heart, the inner life, where he says that the one who's blessed comes to God with no deceit in his spirit. In other words, the joy, the freedom, the liberation, the forgiveness of blessing in verse 1 and 2 belongs to the person who is honest with his God. With her God. We're familiar with spiritual dishonesty, aren't we? Spiritual camouflage, posturing before people to be something that maybe we're not, minimizing, evading sin, coming to God with conditions, wearing a mask takes us into the second lesson on forgiveness. First, we see that blessedness is promised to the cleansed life. Second, we see, friends, crushing misery. This is heavy. Crushing misery accompanies unconfessed sin and hypocrisy. David says, take it from one who knows. Unconf- uh, crushing misery accompanies unconfessed sin and hypocrisy. Look at verse 3. The weariness of sin. He says... When I kept silent about my sin, so it's unconfessed, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Say, law, think about that. David doesn't shy back from warning about just the rotten misery of unconfessed sin. And I think we can look at this misery from a couple angles. We can see that this misery is secretive. This misery is, is hypocritical and secretive, isn't it? Look at that. It's, it says in verse 3 that he kept silent. This isn't just because of sin, but because of sin unconfessed. He was keeping silent about his sin. And, and David wasn't merely then a sinner or an adulterer, but he was a deceiver. He was, a, he was one who played games with the Lord. And you can maybe just imagine David's mind racing Did those messengers by whom he summoned for Bathsheba, did they they know what happened? Did they know his secret? Had anyone connected the dots between the timing of his sin and her pregnancy? Did anyone in the cabinet see through this web of lies and deception? Did anyone happen to notice the coincidence of Uriah's untimely death? And then there was the physical evidence, the letter. Did Joab still have the letter? That letter by which he commanded, send Uriah to the front line so that he will die for certain. Did anyone see the letter? Did he tell anyone about the letter? You can imagine the scheming, self-atoning, covering heart of David in his wickedness this way because you've reasoned this way. And so have I. This is the problem of sin unconfessed. The issue is not just, are you a sinner? You are. So am I. We fail. The issue is putting on a plastic mask of spirituality and being shallow and pretending like we're dealing, things, uh, dealing with things when we're not really battling and trying to deceive and minimize and defiling our conscience in the process. Look at verse 3. Look at what he says. He says he was groaning all day long. You know the amazing thing is, friends, you read 2 Samuel, we went through that, you don't get a sense of that in 2 Samuel. David is going along. He's administrating leadership in the kingdom. He's giving royal decrees. All is well. And he's dying on the inside. His inner life is decaying. He He gives us the truth here. He says, oh, I was groaning. My soul was being poured out like water, parched on a summer day. He says, I was dying because I wasn't right with my God. And so we're, we're, we're yearning towards verse 5. We're going to get there in a second where he, he turns, he confesses, he's honest. But this was a sin that was secretive. It was a misery that was secretive. Second, it was a misery that was exhausting. It was constant. I mean, you could see that. He says, my body wasted away. There's this physical exhaustion. Have you ever been sick to your stomach because of your sin? Oh, I have. Sleepless exhausted. He says, through my groaning all day long, there's this sort of physical, emotional, spiritual wearisomeness. You know what David is telling us here? He's telling us that Proverbs 13, 15 is true. The way of the sinner is hard. We use that often in counseling. David experienced that. He says, take it from one who knows. He's saying image management is wearisome. Pretend spirituality is wearying. Lying is wearying. Mask wearing is wearying. It shreds the soul. Wears us out. Chuck Swindoll, another preacher, calls this psalm the grind of an unforgiven conscience. And it's metal on metal in verse three and four. It's just conviction and burden and shame and struggle and weight. And I just wonder, if, is there someone here this morning and you feel worn ragged in the fever heat of summer because of the sin that's in your life that you haven't gone to with the Lord. You've you've said that you have, but you haven't gone to Him honestly. You haven't gone to Him genuinely. Openly. This misery was exhausting. This misery was divinely ordered. Look at that. Look at verse 4. He doesn't say, oh, everyone's so being too hard on me and I need to get my self-esteem up. No, he says, your hand, O oh Lord, was heavy upon me. And friends, you, you, you know this. I know this by experience in my own life. If we shortcut and, count, and cut corners and minimize, then the good mercy of God is that he lets us feel conviction. That's a mercy, that's a blessing. This misery is a mercy in David's life because what does it do? It pushes us into verse five. It pushes us into honesty and confession. Verse five, read it with me. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Lesson from David, number three. Mercy is extended when we come in confession and brokenness to God. Mercy is extended when we come in confession and brokenness to God. There's a sweetness to verse five, isn't there? Just as we feel the kind of agony in verse three and four, so we feel the spiritual relief in verse five. That this is the water to the soul in that summer. Heat. Friends, there's relief for those who are honest, who put down the mask. Psalm 51, verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. David didn't just make that up for the sake of poetry, he lived it. He said, I know what it is to be in agony. And to be worn ragged and to come clean to the Lord and to find God's restoring mercy, undeserved. I know what that's like. And I want to tell you this morning, if you've had something in your life that you've held on to for a long time, something that's making your soul weary, an area of deception in your life that's wearing you out, if you come brokenhearted and honest before before the Lord today, he'll receive you afresh. Right where you sit. His compassion upon us, upon sinners, is remarkable. He doesn't cluck his tongue saying, I'm going to make you you grovel and beg. He doesn't shame us. No, Jesus is not ashamed of those who are unashamed of him. And he bids us come. What a great message from David, from one who knows the depths of his own deception, to come to God. 1 John 1, 9. That's not a verse on how to get saved. That's written to believers. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us, to cleanse us. So I want to remind you this morning, if it's you, you've forgotten the kindness of the Lord. He delights in you when you come to him with your sin, honestly. There's a pattern in verse 5. Those verbs... The word acknowledge, I did not hide, second. I confessed, third. These are helpful for us. To acknowledge means to make known. To call the spade a spade. To admit specifically, we might say. To make known about our sin what what God already knows clearly. Acknowledgement means I use... Language, I mean, I use categories that the Bible uses. It's not the blame shift language. It's not the, oh, this is my upbringing, or I had no choice, or my brother made me, or I was born this way. It's not addiction language. It's not psychology language. No, we make known, we say about our sin what God who sees all things already knows. We say it. We make it known to him. Not because he's learning, but because he draws us near to him through the life of confession and honesty david says second i did not hide i didn't cover my sin i didn't conceal it i put the mask down this is a word of openness of honesty think about it friends when we come to god sort of softening what we really are or redefining terms or trying to make other people around us believing lies about what's going on he doesn't bless that why because it's it's pumped thick with pride and he opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble, to the contrite, to those who tremble before his word. Proverbs 28 13 says, He who conceals his sin, here's a biblical promise for you, will not prosper. He who conceals his sin will not prosper. We're going to come back to that verse in a second. But when we cover our sin, God wears us out. Now there's kind of a there's kind of almost a, a, a paradox in verses one to five. Because when we cover our sin, it remains uncovered in the eyes of God. But when we uncover our sin, God covers it. In other words, you could say, the way out of the false covering of verse 3 and 4, image management, and into the true blessing where God covers sin, verse 1 and 2, is the confession of verse 5. Acknowledge not hiding third confession is this idea of agreeing with God agreeing with what he says about it you know and after nathan poked his bony little finger into david's chest and said you you are the man it's beautiful he broke down he put down the mask he got real with his god he owned his sin and what happened mercy and blessing and clarity flooded back into his relationship with yahweh again there's there's power there's clarity that comes from a pure life of confession before the Lord. That verse, Proverbs 28, 13, says, He who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses his sin and forsakes it, what does it say? He'll find compassion. He'll find mercy. What a good What a good thing. David was honest with God, and what did he find? He found a willing God. He found the goodness of God. He found the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God. And, And what I'm reminding you of, you know this, what I'm reminding you of, brothers and sisters, is that the heart that trembles before the word of God, that's humble, that brings the sacrifices of contrition and brokenness, a willing confession, I am the man, the problem in my marriage, it's me. The problem with that sin battle, it's me. It's my heart. It's my sin. God blesses that kind of honesty, that kind of man or woman. He forgives. You say, how does he do that? Familiar verses, Isaiah 53 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. That's that same language in the opening verses. Yet we ourselves esteemed him. This is speaking of Jesus stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Again, these are these words for sin. Our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions, they're dealt with by the perfect substitute who lived in our place, died in our place, and rose victorious that we might be brought back to God. He he has dealt with sin so that we can draw near. There's a fourth truth. Number one, blessedness is promised to the cleansed life. Number two, crushing misery accompanies unconfessed sin and hypocrisy. Number three, mercy is extended when we come in confession. The fourth truth is this. Those urgent to be restored find protection and comfort. Those urgent to be restored find protection and comfort. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly... In other words, this is not just David's own experience. It is that, but it applies to us. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. David found a hiding place near to the heart of God... And the fact of the restored relationship by verse 5 then bleeds. It pushes into verse 6 and 7, which permeates with certainty, with confidence, with security in the Lord. And he tells us today is the day to confess. There's an urgency here. He says there's an immediacy to deal now with the inner life. We are to go to the Lord in a way that is urgent with our sin. Not casual, not presumptuous. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 6. He says, in a time that you may be found. In other words, David says, come to him. When the Lord convicts you by the word or by his spirit or by another brother, you feel that nudge from him, go to your God, David says. Go to him. Take it from one who knows that's what he's saying here. He said I did it for 9 months. I silenced my conscience and the Lord ran me ragged from it. Now look at those rushing flood waters. That's an image of preservation no doubt because the flood waters don't overtake, but it's also an image of urgency because the reason they don't overtake is because the blessed man has acted now in his prayer of confession. You guys know this. I know this from experience, sadly. It's possible to be under the pangs of sin, under the pangs of conviction, and to not run to God only to have your conscience silenced, your heart to become hardened in a way that it wasn't before. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever seen someone that you love has experienced that? But look at the sweet provision in verse 7. Look how good this is. Tender There's a hiding place. That's security, safety, provision, protection. And notice how personal it is. It's you. You, Lord, are the one who protects, who preserves, and who surrounds us. It's not ourselves. It's not the sort of sin management, the manipulation of other people, the trying to keep up appearances. No, Lord, you, you are the hiding place. You are the restorer, not ourselves, not our scheming. This is Proverbs 3, 5, friends. Trust in the Lord. Trust him. Lean not on your understanding, your way of controlling people and posturing and making, uh, you know, self-atonement and dealing with sin on our own terms. No, trust in him. He's good. He's kind. He's willing to forgive. And think about the, just the transition that David underwent here. The forgiven life, the blessed life that he's speaking of. He says, before I was under the torment of hypocrisy, accusations of my conscience, threats, uh, voices of fear, pangs of conscience, but now I'm surrounded by songs of deliverance, he says. The promises of God's word, the certainties of his character, the combined throng of the redeemed down the ages, rescued by a great savior. This is what fills David's ears and heart with true confidence and confession. Now, in verse 8, there is uh, a debate on whether the the speaker changes. And uh, I tend to lean on the side that that this is the Lord speaking, speaking through David. And and we have a fifth truth. Uh, Truth number five is that loving discipline comes upon the stubborn. Loving discipline comes upon the stubborn. I use that word loving not merely because discipline is loving. It is. We know that from Scripture. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. But because we don't really meet the stubborn until verse 9. Verse 8, he's speaking tenderly to those who are humble. Look at it. Verse 8 says, let all, sorry, that's Psalm 33. Uh, Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And that's not the Lord saying, I'm watching you, buddy. No, (laughs) no. That's the Lord saying, I care for you. My eye is upon you. You matter to me. I desire for you to go in the way. For you to walk in my kindness, in my patience. What's he saying? He's saying when we're we're patient, when we're honest, when we're open with the Lord, when we're living in verse 5, confession, we can expect his gentle, tender counsel to us. But we're not always like that. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says... Do not be as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. As one pastor has put it, um, you have the path of humble faith, verse 8, and you have the path of heavenly headgear, verse 9, where he says, "Um, my child, receive instruction, and if not, come here for a second, because I've got some headgear that I'm going to put on you, and... I'm going to strap on bit and bridle. Look at verse 9. It's because they won't come, right? Again, this is not a punishment thing, but bit and bridle, if you're unfamiliar, uh, a a bridle is the rope that goes around a horse's neck and the bit is that piece of metal that goes in in the mouth that rests on the gums. It gets the gums fired up if they're a... If they are an unruly horse or mule that that won't come, that won't respond. And he's saying, I will put on the headgear and wear you out. I don't want to. I don't need to. You've got the choice of humility or humiliation. But I love my children. And if you're stubborn, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Whether it's a mule. How many of you guys are a mule? Refuse to move. Refuse to respond to God's word. Or a horse that runs off in its own way. We've been this way. When we hear some truth from the Lord, someone brings us an encouragement, a a correction, or whatever, and we double down, we posture, we talk about sin as if it's a weakness, we nurture self pity, shallow repentance, these different things. We tell ourselves maybe that we've dealt with sin, but we haven't really. And David says, look, fellow sinners, I'm one of you. I know the joy of verse 1 and 2. I know the agony of dishonesty. I've been there. I know what it's like to have a self-righteous mask in the moment. I have scabs on my gums from nine months of God wearing me out. Come to him. It's good. He instructs sinners in the way. Take it from one who knows, who's played games with Yahweh. And so I just ask you, friend, which path are you on this morning? David's saying, listen, from a man who's been there, I've ran from God. If you've turned your back, if you've hardened your heart this morning, David says, listen to me. I know what that's like. And he brings us to our closing truth. One, blessedness is promised to the cleansed life. Two, crushing misery accompanies unconfessed sin and hypocrisy. Three, mercy is extended when we come in confession and brokenness. Four, those urgent to be restored find protection and comfort. Five, loving discipline comes upon the stubborn. And now, six, gladness and righteousness are gifts of God's love to those who trust him. Gladness and righteousness are gifts of God's love to those who trust Him. Look at verse 10. It almost reads like a proverb. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts, underline that, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So not only songs of deliverance surrounding the loving kindness of the Lord, the said, the loyal, covenant, faithful love of God, surrounding those who come. Gladness and righteousness are gifts that we can take as our own because of God's kindness. He is, friends, the source of joy and uprightness, verse 11. He is the instructor in the way, verse 8. He is the hiding place of refuge, verse 6. He is the forgiver, the sin coverer, the one who cancels, conceals, and carries away our burden. And so if there's one asking among us this morning... Can my relationship with Jesus ever be what it once was after I've done X? I've blown it. I I, I beg you, on on behalf of the Lord and David's testimony in scripture, come honest with no holds bar before your God. Call sin, sin. Say, I am the man. Be honest with the Lord and watch him. Watch him work in your life. Watch his kindness be beyond what you could ever imagine. His love for you. Maybe there's someone asking, how can this forgiveness theme be true? How can God who's good, who desires what's right and holy ever forgive me? You don't know how bad of a sinner I am. I don't need to. You don't know how great of a savior the Lord Jesus is. How abounding his loving kindness and mercy is. He dealt with it all, beloved. All our sins, past, present, and future, on the tree, that he bore in his body, 1 Peter 2 says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we would be saved in him, that we would be brought, that we would be one, that we would be be brought near to our God. Oh, and he's so good. Does he require you to deal honestly with your sin, to take off plastic spirituality, to be honest with iniquity, to come before him openly? Yes, he does. But he is the restorer of the broken. He is the one who forgives and who cleanses. There is a fountain filled with blood, the old hymn writer writes, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Friends, there's a fountain that's opened for uncleanness, for sins, for transgressions. May we never turn from the fountain to our own silly devices, our own silly mechanisms to cover sin. Let us rather exhort one another more and more as the day approaches to trust in Jesus. Let's pray.